0: Genesis chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. And he heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten all his glory, all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not towards him as before. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. And Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock and said unto them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. And you know that with all mine power I have served your father, and your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be thy wages, then all the cattle it speckled. And if he said thus, The ringstreak shall be thy hire, then bear all the cattle ringstreaked. Thus God hath taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. And it came to pass at that time that the cattle conceived that I lifted up mine eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ringstreaked, speckled, and grizzled. And the God and the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now thine eyes, and see all the rams which speak which sleep upon the cattle are ringstraked, speckled, and grizzled, for I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowest a vow unto me. Now, arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. And Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us, and hath quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels, and he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting which he had gotten and paid in Paden Aram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian, in that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had, and he rose up and passed over the river and set his face towards the Mount Gilead. And it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days journey. And they overtook him in the Mount Gilead. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, "'Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad.' Then Laban took Jacob Then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mount of Gilead. And this is a reading of God's word. And all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us your word. We pray thee now, Lord, that you will give us your spirit by which we might interpret your word. So compass about us. Let us put the thoughts and cares and foolishness of this world aside that we might focus on you, what work thou hast accomplished, and what blessings are in store. For them that love thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said a few minutes ago, I want to just kind of walk through these verses this morning and um, just kind of do it like most pastors do it, I suppose, instead of um, going and taking these sweeping pictures of things. But we're going to find some truths that will pop out of this as well that are very spiritual in nature, but also we'll pick up some application about how we should live our lives um, as Christians. And uh, what things we should expect from the world around us and just kind of how we relate to all of this. So, Lord willing, those things will come out this morning. Um, If we open this, uh, going back to chapter 30, verses 25 and 26, I want to appreciate where Jacob is in his life because he's got some real fears. And I think we should appreciate um, that those fears are are real and understandable and fears that I think we would have as well. Even if you're Christians, we tend to fall back into this. I know that the Lord is with him, and we know that um, he's not leaning on um, the Lord exclusively, that he leans on his own understanding, as we all do. We take a rational approach to the world, and we uh, come up with reasons why we ought to do the things that we do, and we rationalize um, the things that we fear and and think to ourselves that um, why we have very good cause to be afraid. So I'm going to make a case here as we go through this that, that Jacob's got some uh, real fears, and uh, they are warranted in terms of the way Laban has been dealing with him. So as we uh, come to verse 25 in chapter 30, we should appreciate that um, Jacob is now 91 years old. Now we know he's going to live a long time, so his 91 is not like Our 91 It's probably not even like our 60. So I'm sure he's energetic. He's out watching um, quite a large flock in the field. He's got lots of energy, but he is, in fact, 91 years old. He has, up to this point, served seven years for each wife. Seven, we know in Scripture, is a number of perfection. And when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we can appreciate that the number seven also is an allusion to eternity. The seventh day, you'll recall, was not closed out, um, whereas the previous six days were and uh, the seventh day is the day of rest. So he's um, served um, seven years, the same amount for each wife, while he was in pay which we know means their ransom is high. So when we take this to what Christ paid for you, we can appreciate that Christ paid the same price for every single one of us. Had there been one Christian that he had saved, he would have gone to the cross and died for them, suffering the equivalent of an eternity in the lake of fire for that one individual. So Jacob serves the same amount for each of his two wives. Christ served the same amount for each one of us individually. And we should appreciate that whatever debt we owed, God, due our sin, Christ paid for that with his life. He says in the gospels, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that he came not to be ministered unto, Christ speaking, um, but rather to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, not a ransom for everybody, but a ransom for many. Jacob didn't serve for but the two women. Whatever else he was given, he did not serve for, with the exception of the flock, which, of course, typifies the flock of God. But nevertheless, we appreciate as a type of Christ that um, he paid the same price for each of his wife. It's an illusion of Christ spending an eternity in payment for us. Um, speaking also of the Christian, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it says that we are bought with a price, So what price Christ paid for each of us? Of course, he paid with his life. He owns us outright. So we are to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which the scripture says are God's. Our spirit and our body belong to Christ, belong to God, because God in Christ, who is God, paid for us with his life. So um, in the seven years that... um, The most recent seven years that Jacob has been there, we appreciate that he, his two wives and the two concubines have borne him 12 children. At this point in those seven years, he's got 11 sons and one daughter. So right now, the ages of those kids run from age seven to less than one year old. So he's got a young family is what I'm trying to say. He's 91 years old and he has a young family. Now, in verse 27 of chapter 30, it says, And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. So Jacob has said before him, hey, I've served the time for these, for these two wives. Um, I'd like to go. And uh, he says, well, now wait a minute here. Um, I appreciate that I have enjoyed um, prosperity by virtue of God blessing you. And so as the scripture unfolds there, we can appreciate that Jacob understands that before Jacob came 14 years ago, he had quote, little. That's verse 30. And also in verse 30 it says, but now he has a multitude. So Laban acknowledges the increase of his flock is because the Lord, that's his word, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that means Jehovah, has blessed him for Jacob's sake. And Jacob affirms that in verse 30. He says, yes, it's because of the Lord that you have grown here. Now, That is, in fact, a true statement. Laban has prospered for Jacob's sake. And so there's a principle of application here that Christians should appreciate, that the Lord will bless an entire household for the sake of one of God's elect in that household. God will prosper Um, the parents, um, the fruit of which is enjoyed by everyone in the house, but there might be one of God's elect in the children. There might be one of God's elect in the house, and so God will bless the entire house. The parents will have decent jobs so that they'll be able to support the family. The father in particular should, and God's doing that because he has one elect in there, and so he's prospering the entire house for the benefit of that one um, elect. And so in principle, you'll see this to be true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 is where you um, get the principles of marriage and divorce, and God says there, hey, If a non-believing wife is living with a believing husband, she ought to stay there because she is going to be underneath the umbrella of sanctification by virtue of the believing husband. And then when you flip that around, the same is also true. He says, hey, the believing wife, non-believing husband, might be saved through the preaching of the gospel. But there is this umbrella of sanctification in a household by virtue of one of God's elect and children in that household. I remember sharing that with... uh, My son, when he was younger and more rebellious in his activity, I said, hey, by the way, right now things are going okay for you because you're living underneath the umbrella of our roof, but when you move out and get to be an adult, you'll be out from underneath this wonderful umbrella of uh, sanctification that you're enjoying, and so you're going to bear the consequences of your own sin, which presently, as a minor in my house, I'm bearing the responsibility of that. So that is true in general. Somebody's living underneath your roof, then they will enjoy a certain... um, Sanctification associated being with being in your house. we see this played out in the book of Acts. you' recall that God had told um, the Apostle Paul that he was going to go to Rome and so while they were sailing in the Mediterranean Sea you know they were caught up in a terrible storm and they were um, about to be shipwrecked on the island of Malta and in acts 27:23 Paul is relating to the to the, um, the crew that he says, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. So we appreciate also in the spiritual context that if Paul represents Christ, where Paul goes, where Christ goes, so do all of those that go with him. But the Lord was saying here that, hey, for your sake for your sake, I'm going to spare everybody that is on that boat. The entire ship is going to um, come to shore, be broken up, and you're all going to get on the island okay. So tell everybody, stay in the ship. Um, The spiritual meaning, of course, being stay in Christ, who is the ship that gets us to glory. But what I'm sharing with you here is, again, God is, um, there are uh, many people that reap the benefits of the blessings that God has for his elect. And so in the grand scope of things, God blesses and provides for this world for the sake of the elect. He tells Abraham that he would have spared all of Sodom for the sake of the ten elect that, are, that might have been there. For the ten righteousness' sake, he says, I will not destroy it. But as we know, the ten righteous were not there, so he destroyed it. But big picture here, uh, the world will spin on its axis and keep going, and uh, but we'll still have seasons. It'll be time of sea time and harvest, and still such time as God removes all of his elect, and then he's going to destroy the place. Now, Laban acknowledges this, but we should appreciate that he uses the name Jehovah, yet he himself has no relationship to Jehovah himself. He doesn't know who Jehovah is, he's just using that name in an empty sort of way. Later, we know in chapter 31, verse 30, that he accuses Jacob of stealing his idols. So clearly he has no relationship with Jehovah. And I would uh, use an analogy of this day that um, he no more has a relationship with Jehovah than does a Jehovah's Witness have a relationship with Jehovah. It's an example of somebody praising God with their mouth, though their hearts be far from them. So um, Jehovah Witnesses... um, take some sense of pride that they call themselves that and they use the word Jehovah where we might use the word Lord because they are um, suggesting that they themselves are the true witnesses of Jehovah and yet they don't know that Christ is God. They do not know that the Holy Ghost is God. They have no idea or an appreciation of the Trinitarian nature of he who is three and in one. So what is important for everyone with respect to eternal life, the Lord says in John 17, 3, And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, that would be the God of Abraham, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So people can use the name of the Lord all day long, but they are using it in an empty and vain fashion if they do not have a personal relationship with Christ. If they are not in Christ, nor Christ in them, then it's just empty words. So As we continue in the narrative, consistent with the sovereignty of God, we appreciate that Jacob agrees to stay. God has not called him home, hasn't told him to leave and return to his father's house in peace yet. So as they go through the the negotiative process, um, he agrees to stay. So Jacob and Laban come to an understanding of what Jacob's wages will be. Now from last week, I hope we understood that God gave Jacob a dream and God profited Jacob every step of the way in so much as he engaged in animal husbandry consistent with the dream that he was given, even though Laban changed his wages 10 times. Now, we would understand that word 10 to simply, um, not in a um, literal sense, but simply to appreciate that um, Laban changed his wages a number of times. And that's consistent with the use of the number 10 in scriptures. So it just represents a generic period or a generic period number. Now, in the settling of the conditions for fulfillment of Jacob's service, down in verse 32, we note that after Jacob passed through the flock, separating the livestock that would be counted for his um, moving forward, he separated from the flock which that what his payment would be moving forward, um, and he set them apart unto Laban. But we see in verse 34 that Laban does the same, indicative of his covetous heart. So he doesn't trust Jacob to go through the flock and separate him. So he goes through the flock and separates them um, himself and then gives them to his sons. And then Laban is the one who sets three days journey between the two Flocks. Evidently, he wants to make sure that there's no mixture of these two flocks here because all the speckled and spotted ones and ring straked ones are presently Laban's and they stay over there. And all the ones that would show up in Laban's, in uh, Jacob's flocks, those would be his. So he wants to make sure there's no intermixing between the flocks. And he wants to make sure that he gets everything and Jacob gets nothing. So by his own hand, Laban removes himself from that umbrella of sanctification by which Jehovah has prospered him, suggesting, again, the emptiness of his statement that he had previously made. Now, in a spiritual context, all of the elect are separated by three days from worldlings, from people of this world. We are separated by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So the statement that the world likes to use, oh, it's all good, you've heard that many times, oh, don't worry, it's all good, that is not a true statement, Romans 8, 28 applies only to God's elect. It does not apply to the world. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Jacob is called according to his purpose. And so all things are working together for Jacob's good. They are not working together for Laban's good. And so consistent with that about things working together for our good and what blessings we have being separated from worldlings by the death, burial, and resurrection in Christ, we know that, as it says in Ephesians 1.3, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The rest of the world is not. They are, in fact, dead in trespasses and sin. Now, Laban never should have agreed to those terms. He should have given Jacob a percentage of the flock, in which case his fortune would have been tied directly to Jacob's. It was customary, I am told, that the shepherd would receive 10% of the milk and 10% of the lambs of the flock so that, the, the, um, again, the shepherd would get a percentage of the whole. As you would expect, when a hundred sheep go out in the morning with the shepherd, uh, the owner expects a hundred sheep to return at night. If they do not return, then the shepherd would have to give an account for each one of the sheep that did not return. If it had been torn by an animal, and think about this as you move forward in the scripture, if it had been torn by an animal, the um, owner would expect the remains to be returned to him. Hey, I brought back 99. And here's what is left of that one because it was torn by a lion. Here's the leg, and you can see it was torn by a lion. Or if the animal um, was had succumbed to uh, a disease of some kind, the owner would expect you to say, well, you know, I, I saw this, I tried to help it, I gave it this, I gave it that, but it died anyway, and here is your dead sheep. So there's an accountability process that, that takes place. And so in that, you can understand and appreciate why the Lord says that um, he is a good shepherd and he doesn't lose any sheep at all. And later, uh, next week, Lord willing, Jacob is going to rationalize and say how he dealt with this process. But nevertheless, I want us to understand that Laban made a mistake here separating the two flocks like he did, getting out from underneath the umbrella of sanctification and not tying his fortune to uh, Jacob's. So again, this is suggestive that he really didn't believe what he said about him being blessed for um, Jacob's sake because he is not... um, conducting himself as though he believes it were true even though it is true about Jehovah blessing him for Jacob's sake and Jacob himself had confirmed it Jehovah is in fact the true source of all blessings whether they're vicarious or directly to you they are the he is the direct source of all blessings scripture says in Deuteronomy that he is the reason we get wealth now as we continue we see in verse 35 and also in verse 1 of chapter 31, that Laban has sons, with an S. We don't know how many sons he has, but we can assume based on the age of all these people that his sons were probably Jacob's age. Again, we don't know how many sons he has. We don't know how many sons his sons have, but we do know that where he is living, this is Laban's hometown, and I expect that he's got some extended family there. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 31, we read, And he heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not towards him as before. So problems are beginning to develop, and those problems, of course, are associated with the fact that Jacob is prospering greatly, and they are not, and they believe that he is prospering at their expense rather than God's favor that rests upon Jacob. Now, this is very common, and we struggle with this ourselves as Christians, and we see it out in the world. People will resent the prosperity of others. That's a very common um, thought. We will think that they do not deserve it. <laughs> they will uh, think all sorts of things, and we know that there have been revolutions uh, by which people kill other people because they say not only not only in their heart are they resentful of somebody's prosperity, but they think that they have that prosperity at, at a direct cost to them, which sometimes is true, but it's not always true. In James 4, 5, it says... The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So that's a very common sense for people to go that. Now, when it says spirit of us, it means the spirit of man that dwelleth in us. That is what our flesh does. It lusts to envy because we are covetous. Um, and speaking of envy, we know that it was for envy that Christ Jesus was delivered unto Pontius Pilate to be crucified. That's Matthew twenty-seven eighteen. And we are warned about envy in Proverbs 27, verse 4, where it says, Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Who is able to stand before envy? Again, it was for envy that Christ was crucified. So we can appreciate here that there's problems in the relationship with Jacob and Laban, and Laban's sons, and however far that extends, I don't know, Laban's sons' sons, but there's an issue here and it's of concern to Jacob and I think he has cause to fear the Lord is the one who puts the warning who can stand before envy so um, again I remind us that Jacob's got two wives two concubines and at this point he's got 12 kids still now they range between age 13 and 6 he's got manservants he's got main servants Uh, And he has a very large amount of livestock, all of which he's concerned about these things. Now, how big is this um, flock? I don't know. In verse 43 of chapter 30, it says that the Lord had increased him, quote, exceedingly. Now, if you think about what he gave to um, his brother Esau, you'll read about that in chapter 32, verses 13 through 14, you add them all up he was giving and presenting to his brother Esau 550 total head. That's how much he was giving away. So if he's given away 550, if you would just assume, let's say that's 10%, then he's got a flock of 5,500 livestock. He has got a lot, a very large flock here. Now, Laban um, obviously doesn't have much of a flock, but he's got sons and he's probably got grandsons. And so Jacob's fears are not without warrant as a matter of fact he thinks and he says when he's confronting laban it's in chapter 31 um in verse 42 he says that if his god had not been with him surely thou had sent me away now empty in other words he's afraid that laban would have done violence to him and taken away his flock and perhaps even his um, his daughters um, so um God is, in fact, on on Jacob's side, which he's going to acknowledge, but nevertheless, he's got these fears. So the Bible asks the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, of course, none. But God is um, gracious and he takes our hearts to where he wants our hearts to be and then he'll give us relief. He'll, He'll bring some sense of assurance and comfort. And so in verse three of chapter 31, no sooner have we heard about how the countenance of Laban has changed towards him and we know that Jacob's starting to get a little concerned. But the Lord comes to Jacob and tells him to return unto the land of his fathers and his kindred and he reassures him that he will be with him. So as the fears are building, Comfort comes, and we appreciate that that's what the Lord, how the Lord helps us. So he does what a good husband should do in verses 4 through 13, and he calls his two wives to the field and to his flock, and he sets his case before them. Now, This is a bit of a generalization, but women are generally closer to their families than are men. Scripture says in Genesis chapter 2 that it is the man who shall leave his father and mother and clave unto his wife, and the twain shall become one flesh. Um, But women have a little bit more difficulty leaving their family and engaging in that, um, that oneness relationship with their husband because of the feelings and sentimentality that they have towards their family. So that's just a generalization. Men do it much easier and much quicker. Um, And so here we are, uh, Jacob, who has left his family. Now his wives have to leave their family, and now they have to go off with him. And so he sets the case before them. He sets before them God's faithfulness to himself, Jacob. He sets before them God's faithfulness to himself. And then he sets before them their father Laban's poor treatment and deceitfulness of the way that Laban has dealt with him. Now, it's not always easy to broach a marriage partner about the um, ills of their parents, but he does it here and they um, work through a rational process by which they go, you know, he's right. They, they agree with it. And they, he also says at the very end, after he works through this process, that God has called me to return. So over in verse 14 of chapter 31, we read, and Rachel and Laban answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance with us in our Father's house? That's the $64,000 question, and that's a good question. Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our Father's house? And the answer is, with an exclamation point, the answer is no. There is no portion or inheritance for any saint in this world. There is no portion or inheritance for any saint in this world. Second Peter chapter 3, God tells us very clearly, he's going to burn this place up. And if that weren't bad enough, he says that he's going to dissolve it. So you're not even going to have a pile of carbon and ash is going to dissolve it. There's going to be nothing left of this world. Um, you certainly don't have any portion or inheritance in the kingdom of darkness from whence we came, when the Lord translated us from that kingdom into his kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 says that death and hell or Hades are all going to be cast into the lake of fire. That whole kingdom is going to be gone. There's certainly no inheritance to be had in our flesh, which will die when the spirit departs. There is nothing to return to. The Lord tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are going to get a glorified body, a new body, and we're not, he's not fixing up the old one. We're getting a new one. So what inheritance we have we have in Christ. What inheritance we have, we have in Christ. 1 Peter 1.4 says that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away and is reserved in heaven for us. Everything we see in this world is corruptible and it is defiled and it fades away. The Lord speaks of the entire creation as waxing old like a, uh, a garment. It's just fallen apart. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain, waiting for the redemption of the sons. The whole creation is going to um, be destroyed. There is nothing here for us. What we have is reserved in heaven for us. It is uncorruptible and it is undefiled. And so as the wives kind of ask themselves that question, we see in verses 15 and 16 that they acknowledge that there has been a transference of riches from their father to them and their children. It's not just like the money the father had disappeared, but it went from him to them and their children. And how did this happen? It happened because of God. They say that they acknowledge it came from God, and it happened because of the labors of Jacob, their husband, and they are simply the recipients of that. They are the beneficiaries of the transference of glory and riches from the Father to them through their husband. And I hope we can see the gospel here. Uh, We have received eternal glory and riches from our heavenly Father by the power of God through the labors of our husband, Christ Jesus. Now, when you read through Isaiah 53, it ends up in verse 12, and it says, Therefore will I divide him with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, the victory that was won by Christ through his death on the cross, through the sacrifices that he had made, we are the recipients of it. God the Father is going to divide with him the spoils of that victory. We all get a portion of it. Of course, the portion we receive is Christ himself, which means that though we get a portion, we actually get the whole thing. We are going to inherit the, um, the new heavens and the new earth. As they are given to Christ and we are in Christ, we are the recipients of it because of what he has done. Now, she speaks there about how their father hath consumed... All of their money, and so we see this in a spiritual context, and that um, our heavenly Father was certainly not impoverished by this process. But what glory and riches we inherit do indeed come from Him through Christ, and He, God the Father, is identified in Scriptures as a consuming fire. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse twenty-four. He is a consuming fire. So. I want you to think of that in the context of the Levitical offering, which, when burned on the altar, of course, everything was consumed. And so, when Christ laid down his life for us as the um, antitype of the offering on the altar, that the Lord consumed it and received all of it. And so, we are the beneficiaries of that. And so, Jacob's wives appreciate or they acknowledge the superficiality of these spiritual truths. And then they do what every wife should do, we see this in verse 16, as they affirm that Jacob should, in fact do whatsoever God hath called him to do. Every wife and every husband should, and every saint should affirm that you should do what God has called you to do. You don't ever want to be uh, an encumbrance to somebody who has been called by God to go do something, but you want to encourage them to obey the Lord. However, it is incumbent upon us and helpful for us to help them confirm that what they think they want God wants them to do is actually what God wants them to do, and they aren 't just calling themselves to a ministry without looking into the scripture to see if that would really be something in accordance with god 's will. There are lots of people that think the Lord wants them to do something, but that 's not consistent with scripture, so we would help them look into the Bibles and ask or, ask them to ask themselves does God has God ever asked anybody to do what he 's asking you to do?" And if the answer no, well then they ought not to be doing that it 's just something that they they want to accomplish in their flesh it 's something that they think is a good idea but it's not necessarily a good idea because you don't see that in, in the uh, scriptures. If we see it in the scripture and it's consistent with the things that God has asked other saints to do, it's consistent with his glory. Why, by, that, by all means, we will not only encourage them, but we would help them to do it. And so with respect to Jacob here, God has set his will before him and his wives are aligned with that will. And we also see here, which is also common in scripture, that the fear of Laban is moving him forward. And so we see that Jacob quickly rises up in verse 17 and carries away in verse 18 everything that he's gotten in, quote, their ransom is high, meaning everything he's gotten in paid in Aram. And he does this to go to be with his father in the promised land, just as Christ did when he rose from the dead, having paid our high ransom, And then we read in Ephesians 2, 6 that he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we see this this sudden departure from um, Jacob where he's taking everything with him. And where is he going to go? He's going to go up into Mount um, Gilead just as our Lord raised us from the dead and takes us up into what Scripture refers to as the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, by way of application, we should appreciate that when the Lord works with people, he will typically do two things. He'll typically draw us somewhere, and oftentimes he'll close a door that is behind us. We see this in Jacob's life. This will be the second time we see this in Jacob's life. The first time is when he was told by his father and urged by his mother to go to Pagan Aram to go get a wife. So he was told, here's God's will, you need to go this way. And then uh, we knew that what was... Um, um, lighting a fire on him was his fear of Esau. So God's using Esau to kind of, the fear of Esau, to drive him in a direction that he is leading him to. Now here we are. He's in Padan Aram, and the Lord is telling him to go back, and there's a fear of Laban that's getting him to beat feet back towards the land of Canaan. We also see this in the Exodus, when the Lord tells his people to get up and go, and Moses leads them into uh, down the Sinai Peninsula, And uh, what keeps them moving smartly? It's the fear of Pharaoh and his army. They are going behind him to move him. And that's particularly helpful when it comes time to cross the Red Sea. The Lord opens the Red Sea. They are told to cross the Red Sea. And I imagine they're all looking like, I'm not sure this is something I want to do. But what is behind them? Pharaoh's army, who then helps drive them across the sea. You also see this in the book of of Acts or in the Gospels when the Lord has told the saints, told the disciples that they are to go out into all the world and make disciples, teaching them whatsoever things he has taught them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then what happens when the book of Acts opens? We see that as he pours out the Holy Spirit, um, we see persecution comes upon the saints in Jerusalem and they are driven out just like he told them to do, Judea, Samaria, and all the earth. So the Lord works with us. He is a good shepherd who goes both before us and behind us to make sure that we go where he wants us um, to go. So off Jacob goes with his family and his exceeding flock, thinking perhaps that Laban's not going to be able to track I don't know 5000 animals all headed in the same way. It's almost humorous. We better get out of here and uh, get away from uh, Laban, but I have you know Laban's not going to have any trouble following uh, following him. But we should appreciate that as a Christian who has been told to do something by God that he has nothing to fear. God has said that he would be with him in verse 3 of chapter 31 and every saint should appreciate this that if God has told you to do something you can be sure that you are going to do it, and you will suffer no harm um, that would keep you from doing what God has told you to do. Now think of Jonah. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. That's not something that he wanted to do, but God said, go to Nineveh. And so for a portion of the trip, he got a submarine ride. So rest assured that if God has to drop kick you all the way to where he's told you to go, you will get there. You recall that Paul had told, uh, excuse me, that the Lord had told Paul that he was gonna to go to Rome. And so he went to Rome, come shipwreck, all of the obstacles that were between himself and Rome. God said, you're going to Rome. And so to Rome, he went. God has told all of his saints that they are going to go to glory in Christ. And so they will go to glory. You will get there. Um, And indeed, if you are a Christian now, you are positionally, you are there because you are in Christ. But you're going to get there in your glorified body. He will make sure that you get there. So as we continue, off goes Jacob to the promised land. And we see in verse 21 that he passes over the river, which in scriptures can sometimes be a metaphor for death. And he sets his face towards the Mount Gilead, which means heap of witness. And when he gets there, up he goes. In verse 23, we see that he pitches his tent and is overtaken by Laban there. So he's crossed over this metaphorical river to death. Up he goes to the Mount of Witness. And that makes us think of Hebrews 9.27, where it says, For it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And so we are in what is, I would say, allegorically represents a spiritual courtroom where Jacob's words to Laban, spoken six years earlier, come to fruition. In chapter 30, verse 33, um, in terms of the integrity of the um, payment he will receive for shepherding the flock, Jacob said, so shall my righteousness answer for me in my time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Jacob has made... Probably unknown to him, what I would characterize as a prophetic statement. And that's the way this is going to play out, and we'll pick up the rest of this next week. But before I do, I want to ask a few questions as we move into that. And these all come from Romans 8:31 and following, and it all applies directly to where we are right now. In Romans 8:31, God asks the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? There is Laban, excuse me, Laban, yeah, pursuing uh, Jacob and he has within his hand to do him violence. Laban's going to say that, but if God be for us who can be against us? In verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Well, God answers every one of those questions for us as he asks the question, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody can be against us if God is for you. Uh, Jacob is going to get to the promised land, um, be at peace with his father, with his flock. Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Having given his only begotten son, having died on the cross for our benefit, having given so great a thing, why would God withhold anything from you? And the answer is, he would not withhold it from you. He will give you what you need. In verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There is no charge that can be um, characterized as meritorious against one of God's elect because it is God himself that justified you. Therefore, you are just. Who is he that condemneth? Well, no one can condemn you because Christ was condemned in our stead. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He's interceding for you. He has received the condemnation that was due us as the intermediary between us. I mean, any charge that can be brought against us, he would say, Well, I bore that. I took care of that. Um, That person is just. And in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives a list of things here. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I want us to appreciate as uh, these verses in particular as we come to the Lord's table and we think about what things he has done for us. And so as we think of the cross where he indeed accomplished all of these things, we should appreciate that and rest in him because he will make sure we get to glory just as surely as Jacob is going to get to uh, the promised land in peace with his father. Amen. Amen.